0: Welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. Today I'm talking with Lindsay Odes. He's a professor at the University of Melbourne, where he's also the director of the Centre for Positive Psychology at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education. He's also the co-editor of a Wiley-Blackwell handbook of the psychology of positivity and strengths-based approaches at work. That's a mouthful. I caught up with Lindsay in Budapest at the 2018 European Positive Psychology Conference and I really wanted to talk to him because of his expertise in positive organizations and taking a systems approach to promoting well-being at work. In this conversation we talk about his own experiences of changes in the academic sector and his key learnings getting to full professor. We also talk about what positive psychology can offer to academic work environments and well being, covering issues such as values and purpose, meaning, strengths, promotion processes, performance reviews, job crafting, and academic leadership. Lindsay also has some great terms that you'll enjoy like justificationism. Lindsay, thank you for joining me today, taking time out from this conference that we're at.
1: No problem. You're very welcome.
0: Yeah. And a, a fellow Aussie By chance, but the the reason why I wanted to talk to you was because of all the research that you do and the expertise that you have around well-being in workplaces, Um, and I want to get to that soon, but just interested to hear a little bit about some of your own background.
1: My background, where to start? Um, (laughs) My professional background, originally Mm. I trained as a clinical psychologist. Mm. Um, I spent quite a bit of my early stage of my career, developing models for people with serious mental illness and ch- helping change mental health systems um, in the Australian context. Um, academically, I was working in a school of psychology in a faculty of health and behavioural sciences, so probably psychology for health is probably the, the best way of putting that. Um, then the middle phase of my career was going to the business school to help develop um, research and teaching around workplace well-being. So I spent a fair bit of time there. So it, how did that switch happen? Was uh, it... I think it, it happened partly because I was getting more interested in positive psychology and wellbeing than mm-hmm. I was in illness. Mm-hmm. I was also interested mm-hmm. in coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I'd also done an MBA. So I had a, a mixture of things which led me across. So well-being was a common... Well-being was a common factor, so yes. well-being in a different sector.
0: Yes. Uh, but, but doing an MBA sounds like an interesting choice as well when you were doing more sort of clinical-facing or clinical psychology. Yeah, I think that
1: happened when, when I was actually working prior to my academic career. I worked briefly as a, as a, practic- as a clinical psychologist mm. in a rehabilitation hospital, um, and then the, it just got closed. Um, and I was very frustrated by that. And I thought, well, I need to know more about how systems work and business and organisations and things like that. Because if this can just be closed and I've got nothing to do, I have no influence. Uh, I need to get broader in my thinking than an individual practitioner. So.
0: So you're an activist at heart, in a way. Internally. Internally,
1: yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Um, and plus, I probably, from the work I was doing in mental health, I came across this phrase, most problems are not clinical problems, they're organisational problems. So I got, and it's been a theme through my career, I've kind of got, I've moved from negative to positive and mm-hmm. I've moved from um, individual to larger system in my, yeah. in my thinking. Yeah. Um, so it's been an, ev- an evolution. Yeah. Um, um, I've gone bigger in my scale yeah. of, of systems thinking.
0: And the, the systems thinking. What does what's that giving you beyond looking at the individual? Why do you think that's important?
1: Um, good question. Um, I think every everything I experience is that there are multiple causes, mm. um, and depending on where we position ourselves and what we look at. Um, it'll lead us to, you know, it just leads us to a broader and more comprehensive understanding of what how, th- how things really are.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, whereas if we assume that things are linear and we reduce them to one cause, it's inevitably incomplete.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so I, I just find it a, mu- a much more sophisticated way of thinking yeah. um, multiple multiple parts to a system and what's what's leading to what. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there are so many examples of it um, yet. Yeah, so many people th- find it difficult to think in that way.
0: So. It's, it makes it much more complex, doesn't it? More
1: complex. Um,
0: Harder to get published in your area?
1: Uh, probably. I, I, my academic career is only my actual formal academic approach using systems approaches is very mm. recent um, So, you know, I probably look at some of my old stuff and I go, wow, that was very linear and reductionistic. And, you know, Mm -hmm. so, again, it's kind of an evolution. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it gives you a broader understanding and in some ways broader acceptance of when things go wrong because you don't attribute them all to one thing or one person. You can see the confluence of events Mm -hmm. that lead to things. So seemingly ridiculous things, but when you look at all the forces, it makes more sense.
0: So So there's something about... Having a having a more nuanced understanding of of what's going on, yep. does it also lend itself better to intervening and having an impact? You know, if you understand all of those different, or at least attempt to understand all of those different influences, and
1: um, certainly at a personal level, it does. Mm. Uh, meaning, you can kind of see how a multifaceted mm. intervention or multiple levers in a bigger system leads to the change. Um, but it, people don't always buy that and they don't always see it themselves. So it's, you might see it, but not everyone necessarily sees it the same yeah. way because they want simple explanations. Yes. Um, I, and I have a pet, th- I don't have evidence for it, but I have a pet theory at the moment that the more anxious and negative we get, the more we will seek simple, linear, reductionistic understandings of things.
0: Wasn't there something about um, as we get more anxious about things we, our vision literally tunnels someone did research that talked about field of view and what Yeah there's the broaden that. and
1: build theory which looks at um, positive and negative emotions mm-hmm. so with negative emotions you'll narrow your visual field um, mm-hmm. and there and more yeah you know, more generally the idea of stress you protract your time frame so that's where phrases like take one day at a time mm. come from because it's I can't I can't cope with all that, so you bring it yeah. close and near. So yeah. yeah.
0: So when did you move into academia? Was
1: Uh quite early. I moved in I, I worked as a clinician for a f- couple of years on the late part of my PhD mm. and then I got an appointment quite early. So um 2000, 18
0: years ago. Mm. Yeah. And Seems a long time now did, I when I say it. Yeah. <laughs> remember when we were worried about the millennial bug? Millennial or, bug, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What are the changes that you think you've seen over that time?
1: In the academic world? Yeah. Um, well, just to complete... Well, I'll just complete my. Yes. So I went from the business school and now in, I'm now in education faculty. So I've gone from health, gone from a health oriented approach to wellbeing to business to education. So I've tracked across the three. Um, So the changes I've seen in academic life, higher education in general in Australia Mm -hmm. and then academic, and the academic life consequences of that. Um, There's been many. there's been huge increases in student numbers there's been internationalisation of higher education which has brought many international students there's been the reduced funding from the federal government which has led to um, much more financial pressures and a much more managerial
0: Mm -hmm. commercial
1: style in higher education Mm -hmm. Um, and there's been a Contracting of r- competitive research funding availability. There's been a freezing of uh, RHD, scho- so PhD scholarships, freezing as in I got a PhD scholarship in 1997, which is probably. To, to do
0: your own PhD. To do my own PhD,
1: yes. which was about the same amount as. Students now receive eighteen years later. So, and
0: cost of living has not stayed the same.
1: Um, yeah, and students now work much more than they used to. Um, in in the in the seventies and eighties, it would have been early eighties. A student would have the study would have been their primary thing. Mm-hmm. Now, now nearly all students work. Um, so there's a whole. It's it's quite a different place than not so much when I. St- when I started as an academic, but maybe when I started as a student. So I've seen, I've tracked that, yeah. seen that 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 change. Um, so it's it, it probably what hasn't changed, at least in the Australian context, is is the the undervalue that Australian culture places on academics. Um, I'm not sure whether it's tall poppy syndrome or what it is, but there's some sort of Almost anti-intellectualism in Australia that that doesn't value academics in the same way that you say may, you may see them valued in North America or uh, in Europe. Um, so that hasn't that hasn't changed, but that may just I think that's just an artifact of certain aspects of Australian so how does culture. How's that
0: valuing play out practically? Is that in terms of money or just
1: respect? I think it's respect. Yeah, I think it's um, the. I think intellectual life is more valued in some aspects of North America and certainly in Europe. Um, I don't see it particularly valued in Australian culture,
0: mm. um, unless so not just by government, but more generally general by the general public.
1: Population. Yeah, or, or popular media. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if I've answered your question, yeah, but I've but seen I've yeah. seen many changes. Yeah. I think I think what that's led to is. Fewer positions, um, scepticism about young academics' ability to develop careers, um, larger teaching loads, um, multiple people scrambling for small amounts of money—in what I call academic feudalism. Mm, uh,
0: like that. And I mean, not, I don't like—I don't like it happening, like but I like term. the concept.
1: Um, you okay. know, and, they, and because any government funding because it's public funding, has so many criteria around it. So you see these so-called good minds spending huge amounts of time to get access to $10,000 or something, you know, or $50,000. Relative In the grand scheme of economy, relatively small mm-hmm. amounts of money.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so those, those types of pressures in academic life yeah. um, that... And a lot of academics are very detail-oriented people, or what I would call naive rationalists. They they think that they're going to get the solution through reasoning, and um, and then get frustrated when politics or economics knocks them around. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've seen a lot of that.
0: What what about in your own for your own work? Uh,
1: how,
0: how does that play out in terms of the the academic feudalism and the the.
1: Um, that's a good question. I, I mean, it's um I'm, I'm now a full professor, so I, my vantage point's probably quite different. Yeah. I'm a full professor and a director of a center, so my vantage point is quite different than <clears throat> say it would have been when I was, say, a lecturer level or a,
0: yeah
1: even a senior lecturer level person. Um, going back to when I was a lecturer level person, it was you know, I had to go through the whole teaching load and trying to get your first publications. Um, But because I was in an applied area, originally clinical psychology, but it's always been relatively applied, Um, and I was slightly, you know, used to be called entrepreneurial or commercially minded, I don't think I was by world standards, but by academic standards I was. Yes, relative to
0: colleagues in the... Yes, Uh,
1: and so I used consultancies and... Things like that as a way of generating funding. Um, And so I kind of deliberately sidestepped feudalism um, Mm -hmm. and went and generated Mm -hmm. my own funding.
0: So was that a very deliberate decision or Uh, is that sort of a framing of it looking back?
1: Um, No, I think it was quite, I think it was deliberate
0: Yeah.
1: Um, when I worked out the small amounts of money people were trying to compete with each other for when you could go out and generate funding through consulting and then you know I wasn't an institution that allowed me to have some of that as a slush fund mm. um, not all institutions do that mm. um, and not all academics necessarily have the same opportunities to do that because different disciplines afford different opportunities.
0: Yes, you do need to be Um, in a more applied area.
1: um, Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Or or find a way to hang with people that can make your area useful um, as a a sort of secondary funding source.
0: So did you use the work that you did as part of the consultancy then as input for research, as data for research? Uh,
1: I used it... Sometimes it was input for research or it was just income... Um, slush fund money to pay for conferences or to pay for RA work or...
0: RA being research assistant. Research assistant, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, Things like that. Yeah. So slightly different approach than many may have done. Mm. So Uh, you didn't
0: have to have in your, I don't know, your promotion package a statement that you got government funding as a tick box... I
1: know that I was still there. You still have to have that. Yeah. So I still went for competitive grants and government funding and got all that, but it was just having a, having a base-level funding mm. source yeah. so not to spend all your time worrying about can I find yeah. $3,000 to do X, Y and Z. It takes um, the pressure off a bit. Yeah, so you're still having to work, but you know yeah. you can value-add mm. what you're doing.
0: Yeah. So... Yeah. so. What what were the key things that you think you had to learn as an academic through that journey to full professor?
1: Good question. Um,
0: or skills you had to develop, or whatever. So that that was one thing. Patience of being, in, being creative.
1: <laughs> patience was one. Of, well, yeah, patience. one of them was diff- uh, challenging. Not 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 taking the system too seriously because mm-hmm. the system is um, academic life can be very disheartening. Mm-hmm. Um, most, you're you often, and a lot of academics say this, they feel undervalued by their own institution, and most of their uh, recognition and credit they get are from people they don't usually see, or people overseas who recognise the quality of their work, um, yet in their, in your own institution, you're told you're not producing enough, or you're not teaching enough classes or you need to shift this or, yeah. or whatever. So it's this weird um, local invalidation
0: and validation
1: mm. from someone a long way away. Um,
0: so not taking the lack of, in, no, yeah, no not, lack of not, validation yeah, too seriously
1: from your own institution. Yeah, or don't seek validation in the wrong place. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so being realistic. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and remembering what a uh, what a what a university is, and it's this um, incredibly resilient organisation. Um, and although commercial people like to make fun of the inefficiencies at universities and keep threatening that they're not going to survive, the fact is that they're, you know, they're eight or nine hundred year old institutions. And in in contemporary language, they're very resilient organisations. Um, but they do that partly through the slowness of themselves and, you know, everyone criticises a university until their children graduate and then look how happy the parents are. Mm. Um, yeah. So yeah. Um, I, I just think... And then a lot of academics mistake <laughs> seriousness with excellence. So there's a lot of very serious, hard-working people running around and some of them terribly unhappy, uh, which is kind of sad, mm. but... Um, but they often work hard. So one of the paradoxes is the stereotype of academics in Ivory Towers walking around doing nothing and, you know, drinking coffee and maybe having a chat every now and again about ideas um is not my experience of academic life. No, not mine. All. Um, nor any
0: of people I've spoken with. Yeah. Um
1: and it's not you know, it's not that they're Life and death, so they're not they're not soldiers, or they're not you know they're not uh, working in an emergency mm-hmm. unit at a metropolitan mm-hmm. hospital where people are dying in front of them. So it's not all terrible, but the constant workload um, mm-hmm. and multiple roles that academics have to cross between teaching, research, community engagement, and administration, um, without a lot of people's understanding of that. Most people will understand. Uh, An academic as a teacher.
0: Yes, I often get asked. People often say, "Oh, you must be taking it easy now. You're enjoying your break." Yes. Yeah.
1: Um, Yeah. So no, no real understanding. Mm. They kind of have a a high school model of what academics do, Um, which is so be it. You know, you get to not care about that too much. Um, But those sort of misconceptions. so back to your question about what I've learned or what I had to have, um, probably a light touch or a non-grasping view of what it is. It's sort of it's don't take it too seriously. Don't get sucked into um, the rumination and the competitiveness that people go through, um, and the valuing of each other based on. It's sort of, I call it the academic gaze almost. It's like it's all a little... I find it a little bit comical at times. Mm. So kind Mm. of uh, valuing the absurdity.
0: (laughs) But it's interesting, though, because if you're at a a sort of an entry-level lecturer position, somehow you need to have that sort of gaze if you have any aspiration for... Promotion or career progression. You know, how do you balance that? You know, keeping that sense of lightness of touch and um, not taking things too seriously, but also recognizing you know all the all the things that you said before about the ways in which it's changed and. I think if you, I, I think you
1: need to find good mentors and get into good teams. Yeah. Um, a lot of my research output has come from being in a good team. Um, and again, that varies across disciplines some people are more likely to work in teams than others mm. but I was in you know, i'm in applied social sciences so that working in a team is accepted practice um, and that helped a lot both through because of the relationships and because of the outputs uh, and finding good mentors mm. so being part of a good group um, and that that kind of carries you along. Um, and I, I think upon reflection, I always had this sort of healthy scepticism and sardonic humour and I had this statement of, uh, you know, when I was a younger academic, I actually felt that it was quite ageist and it was it was heavily stacked towards being older because if you looked at the criteria of professors, you just physically couldn't achieve them unless you were older.
0: You mm. just didn't
1: have time to have accrued all of that unless mm. you were a super genius. Um, and I've only met a couple... Um, you just wouldn't get to that level without age. Yeah. So I used to say, I'll keep doing what I'm doing because I'll be a professor anyway because age will take care of it. (laughs) Um, which has proven to be true. Um, so there is, I do think there's a somewhat of an ageism in the way it's structured. Um, because it it still values declarative knowledge and you can just know more when you're older. Mm. Um, and I've said this many times, and, and then I've been told I was wrong by people who were 20 years older than me. Um, <laughs> so, just, just to prove the point. Um, to prove your point. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, I guess I'd probably cope through um, a bit of humour.
0: Yeah.
1: Humour, patience, yeah. relationships, being in good teams, being quite purposeful about... I've always had my own purpose about why I was doing it, Mm. So I didn't have a, an instrumental view of academia where pu- publications for publication's sake, grants for grant's sake. So a non-instrumental approach. Uh,
0: that sort of reflects that not having an academic gaze as well. Yes. That you're doing it because it's and something the, that you care about. And if it happens to result in...
1: Yeah, two things. I, I absolutely care about it. Um, I've always been attracted to ideas and learning. So... It, we're at a positive psychology conference. Love of learning is one of my number one strengths. Um, uh, wouldn't say this at, at a university context, but comparing myself to the general population, I'm, you know, I'm conceptually strong. I've got, I'm, I'm good with ideas. I, I reason I can, that, that comes naturally mm. to me. Um, well, maybe not naturally. I don't know. It, 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 it's easier for me than some people. Um, so yeah, I'm good at it. I'm not good at gymnastics. Mm. Um, so it's an area of strength for me. So that combined with having a, a value and a purpose about why I'm doing it, I think those those two things have buoyed me along. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah.
1: It, it doesn't feel... It's hard work, but it doesn't feel... I don't feel out of place.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Do you have any particular or deliberate strategies for reminding yourself of the, that value and purpose that underpins what you're doing?
1: Um, probably. I, I we, our team. So I'm in a team, Centre for Positive Psychology at the University of Melbourne. There's 17 of us, and we're we're very. Values and purpose-driven group of people, um, but yeah, I have I have some clear things that I work towards in my life that I'm trying to achieve that involve helping other people or changing systems in in service of well-being, mm-hmm. etc. So they're they're quite purpose, meaning-based initiatives. So I, I keep those quite close. Mm. Um, and then constantly remind myself that um, that we're in this for, for for that so I'm not surprisingly in attracted to ideas like impact and things like that yes. as opposed to H indices so metrics yes. about how we're stacking up against other people um, and one of the frustrating things <coughs> about that I've every time. Every promotion, every time I've gone for promotion, so I went, you know, I've got a lecturer, senior lecturer, associate professor, professor. Each time, um, you know, you've got to do your big application, and they are big, and, you know, different institutions do it differently. Sometimes you've got to be interviewed or attacked or whatever, reviewed. Um, Makes you very extrinsically focused, Mm. and I, I really found that psychological impact of that process I really didn't like because it took me away from what I valued about what I was doing oh, and made me very externally oriented yep. and extrinsically motivated uh, You know, to, to develop your list of how good you are and all the things that you've done mm-hmm. and all your rewards and mm-hmm. all of the extrinsic external things um, which were actually not to do with love of learning or the meaningful impact that you're trying to have
0: yeah that didn't um, connect with why you're doing it no it's...
1: so um and then people say well why do you want to get promoted and to be honest lower down the tree it was it was external things i wanted more income so i could live mm. um <laughs> mm. uh and there was this prove myself i could do it um but more recently, the, the thing that was driving me to get to Professor was because I knew that as soon as I did, I'd get on more of the senior committees or invited to senior things where I could have more impact. Yeah. Uh, and it yeah. really was that, um, whereas earlier in my career it wasn't
0: that. Yeah.
1: So there was that sort of shift to meaning. Yeah.
0: Um, but it's yeah. interesting for the story you had to tell in the promotion pack wasn't that story, but the story about how wonderful you were by, oh, by yeah. external I letters. call it,
1: I mean, rampant justificationism. <laughs> you're <have> <laughs> a
0: great term.
1: It's like you, you spend all your time justifying yeah. who you are and yeah. how good you are yep. and, um, and then a, a portion of your time actually doing, you know, the, the, the conceptual or empirical work that you're supposed to be
0: doing. Mm. Um, so if you were running, if you had the magic wand and could run promotion processes, uh, what would you do? Um,
1: well, it's interesting. Comparing institutions, I prefer the one I've just... I prefer the process mm-hmm. I've more recently experienced because it's whole of career rather than how, do you, how did you go since last time you've been promoted. So I'd I'd keep, I'd keep the whole of career mm-hmm. approach um i'd probably make it more portfolio based about tell us tell us all you, tell us examples of the good i'd probably make it less constrained in x y z of how you have to fit yourself into a box and make it more uh more and more enabled to have qualitative processes um and i'd probably i don't know it's i haven't really thought about mm-hmm. how it how i change it.
0: Um, it would just be interesting to think about that a bit more, isn't it, given how do you let... How do you provide some accountability and how do you make... Because often you have competitive positions as well, so how do you make comparative judgments with applicants, um, but also how do you enable people to tell the stories that are really their authentic stories and not these extrinsically motivated...
1: By measures that the system values? I'd probably do exactly that. I think the word story is important. I'd probably provide more mechanisms for people to tell their story and almost like a video where you actually video someone, they get to speak um, and tell their story and not solely... Um, classic academics, you've got to have everything in a written document, so everything's done through a written mode... Um, so I'd have other media of convincing or, or being able to give you a case. case. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's my answer. Yeah. <laughs> in, a, in a narrative form. Or in a form that the person wants to tell their story um, about where they've been and what they're trying to achieve and, and basically make their case. Yeah. But make their case in a more variegated and personally meaningful way.
0: Yeah. So that is one thing that's come across with just about everyone I've spoken with is how much people do find yeah. meaning in, their, in, in the essence of what the work is that they're doing. Yeah. And you know, people do care.
1: Well, that's one of the... Um, from a managerial point of view, that's, that's one, of the, one of the reasons it makes it easy to exploit a workforce so we can do it with teachers because they love their students. We can do it with nurses because they love their patients. And we can do it with researchers because they love their research. So while they've got their head down, we can knock them around, exploit them and pay them less. Um, so it, it it it's a strength of the workforce because people enjoy what they're doing, but it also makes them easy to exploit. Yeah. Um, yeah. So sounds a bit neo-Marxist, doesn't it? But it it is... Um, it is a danger for people that love what they're doing because they can get knocked around by yes. by yeah. the forces that want to just keep them doing what they're doing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so. so with your um, hat on as an expert in sort of well-being in the workplace, what impacts are you seeing you know, in terms of well-being impacts that all this is having?
1: Um, I was involved in... I mean, I've had the, the lived experience of it, obviously, but I've also been involved in... Some of the larger scale multiple university surveys of both academic and professional administrative staff. But I'll, I'll talk about the academic, academic staff because that's a little more unique. Some of the professional staff in universities, their experiences are not that different than other no. administrative workforces. Yes. But the academic experience is different because it's a slightly different, it's, it's different than some, some other cultures or sectors, um, what I have seen in the, in the data we had and the data I looked at is, is in general, academics, um, they have high levels of workload and high levels of stress, but they still have reasonably high levels of job satisfaction. Um, so what that tells me is that there's another variable, which is accounting for that. And it usually is what we were just talking about, yeah. purpose or meaning or yes. some, yep. some value that they're getting from their work, either through personal satisfaction or intellectual enjoyment or impact of their work. Mm. It, it can vary, but there's a, they put up with high levels of workload, um, and stress because there's something else they're getting out of it,
0: um, and they're getting enough of that
1: yes. to yeah. get
0: that meaning
1: yeah. and purpose um, hit. And to be honest, the you know if we go back to extrinsic motivation, the young academics they don't get paid that much, so they go for a fair while without getting um, financial mm. gain. Mm. Um, you know that the. So the professorial salary and superannuation—it's—it's—it's it's, it's quite reasonable. It's not—it's not too bad. It's not—you know—you can always compare to industry and people doing really well in industry, and they'll get a lot more. Um, but there's a lot of people who don't. Mm. Uh, so there's kind of a—you kind of got to wait till you get your financial reward, and and not everyone gets it. Mm. So you got to have another reason for why you're in the game. Um, it's not a place to go if, if, if money is a key driver.
0: It's not. No, it isn't. <laughs> but, so, you do, so you've got high job satisfaction, but high workload and high stress. Yep. So at some point, there must come a point where you, you just can't handle the stress and the workload anymore, or what, what's the research saying around that? Where are the tipping points? <laughs>
1: I think there's a lot. There's a whole lot of factors. There's there's the individual institution. There's the individual faculty and the individual department, section, or mm. school or department. So, um, in a, I'll talk about the Australian context. It's a, it's a very uneven playing field. There's some, you know, the G eight universities. There's a or universities that are doing well financially and then so there's... So G8
0: are the sort of the original, old you know, the, yeah, the more Ivy established League. Ivy, yes, sort Ivy
1: of League. model. So there's the universities that are doing better. Usually they're metropolitan universities mm-hmm. in, in Australia. Um, and so what that means is that there's less financial pressure. But as soon as you have financial pressure, mm-hmm. that means increased teaching load, increased workload, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So... First thing I'd say is where, um, which institution, and then which faculty, which discipline, because different disciplines have different financial pressures, um, commerce schools and things like that. They're cash cows for universities, um, but what that will mean is increased teaching and less concern about research, Um Whereas medical schools can be very research intensive. They make, they make a loss from their teaching, but they make it all up from their big research grants. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's quite variegated right. in by institution and by faculty. Yeah. Um, and then coming to the individual person level, um, obsessiveness, narcissism, perfectionism, these sort of psychological mm-hmm. constructs, mm-hmm. um, that we'll see in academics, um, and we select for them too. Yeah.
0: So <laughs> these, these are characteristics or traits that, that academics are more likely to have some um, yes. general...
1: Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. So overthinkers, um, they're good at thinking, but then that overused, that can be problematic. Mm. Um, so you'll see those, and so... Um, that all those, all those things play out. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: yeah. So.
0: Yeah. It's an interesting, you know, just think of some of the discussions here, you know, about strength. So, strength being that you're good at thinking, yep. but recognizing that when you overplay that strength of overthinking, it's going to. <laughs> well, yeah, I often
1: joke, I get very valued for my ability to argue, reason, and pick holes in arguments at work. I don't get value for it at home. No, I don't either. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> so, if my
0: husband was listening, he'd have a little laugh now. Yeah. yeah. So
1: there's things like that. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because although the effects of the system, I, I, I find one-on-one I find academic academics generally very nice people, uh, easy to relate to, usually quite kind, obviously considered people. Um yet the systems we create and or inherit can be kind of absurd um, and it's kind of at an individual level, the considered academic is good, they go over ideas, they think about things, but then you put them in committees to make decisions and they keep doing that and they can't make a decision and then they develop systems that require justification. And, it, you know, so the systems they create, the institution they create, Ends up being not that effective, even though individually what they're doing is is a good is a good thing. Mm. Um, mm. Because you get ten academics who go over a single word and can't make a decision, and they need to make an appointment, and it takes them literally eighteen months to make an appointment for something that could have been done in three weeks. Yes. Um, and that what the effect of that is, it slows everything down, and so the poor person that needed the new staff member downstream gets doesn't get their new staff member so that what I'm trying to get at is one-on-one good people Mm. well-intentioned people smart people but not always smart in the sense of that that they understand organizational life
0: yeah
1: Um, and I think that's there's some serious problems with that that need need redressing
0: yeah
1: Um, so if academics understood organizations better and management better we could probably stop some of these yeah. things happening.
0: Um, Would we'll just... you go into management? because you know, if you've got an MBA, oh. I'm just thinking: you know, Do we will academics ever take on that sort of training to 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 complement the skills that they naturally have? Probably, that I, more. I mean, in
1: some papers? ways, I already am in management because I'm a I'm a centre director, so 50 percent of my role is management. Yeah. Um, on paper, mm. um, and in reality, it's mm. probably 75 percent of yes. my role is management. Yeah. So. Um,
0: so I'd like to pick that up, but just before we do, because you talked about you know, that we're here at a positive psychology conference, and we should just say that what, what positive psychology is, because I think often there are misconceptions. I so just in the sort of to
1: okay, um, so positive psychology. There are you know there are many trite definitions, short definitions. Mm-hmm. The science of optimal human functioning. Um, the examination the the the. Ex- taking strength-based approaches to things in the service of well-being. But historically what it is, it's really a redressing of what was seen as a deficit-based focus within psychology, so psychology in the service of understanding and treating mental disorder or understanding problems with people's personalities or educational uh, deficits. So a deficit or negative lens on things to to repair. Um so positive psychology is really an attempt at redressing that or um, balancing that out with approaches that look at... Use a positive lens to look at things or look at optimal functioning, but taking a scientific approach yeah. to do that. Yeah. Um, so, so in essence, that's what it is. Um, and it's
0: not ignoring problems either. Not ignoring it's not ignoring it, it's, not at all.
1: It's it's um, looking at
0: a, a... taking a more forward-looking... Yeah. How can we... And
1: augmenting... Existing approaches like yeah. clinical psychology, which is about treating yeah. me- or helping people who are yeah. experiencing mental disorders or those negative experiences. Um, what, what does the positive end of the spectrum look like and how do we understand that, predict it, enable mm-hmm. it? Um, and so being gets talked about. Um, that's one of the major products of what we're trying to do. Um, and strengths, approaches or those types of processes as the interventions, right. if you yeah. like.
0: So how does that lens impact what, how you play at your role as Director of the Centre, practically?
1: Well, it's a double whammy because you have a group of people who know that language. Oh, of
0: course, yes. Um,
1: as well as having the knowledge yourself. So um, it's kind of a, a unique situation. So if I was managing a group of people who weren't Um, say I was managing a group of chemists or something, Mm. it's different than managing a group of positive psychologists because they already have that expertise. Um, That kind of brings me to the language. Do they have the language? And, yeah, this group of people already have the language. Mm. But they are still in an environment, they might have the language, but that's, that's a micro environment. We're talking about a group of 17 people in a university of 28 1,000 students and however many, 3,000 academic staff Mm. who don't have that language, who come from the academic tradition that we were talking about before. So although they have that, they're still a minority. Um, So it is, they still talk about the frustrations of working in the big system Mm. and how to cope themselves. And they're still, you know, the knowledge behaviour gap, they still... Just because they have the knowledge yes. doesn't mean they can always apply it, yes. either personally or systems always beat you know structure agency debate. The structure of the system will always beat the individual desire. Mm. Um, I say always, nearly always, often. Um, so they still experience the constraints. They're probably just more articulate about what what they are mm. and then how to how to have a mm. go at maintaining their own. Um, maintaining their own well being, purpose, etc.
0: Yeah. Um, so I'm just wondering if are there any practical tips or tricks that you know, especially I guess then because you do know the science and even though you're struggling with that knowledge behaviour gap, things that you do that would be interesting <coughs> for people to hear in you know, how well, to we, manage people or how to bring out the best We people. had
1: um, budget of allowing. Uh, yeah. We we had a, all our team got coached, so every everyone was assigned a coach, um, and to have well being coaching. So it was like, okay, well we believe in well being, so everyone can have a individual well being coach, and that's part of. And it's not attached to performance. It's not attached to you. Or it's not a reward. And it's not a special thing you apply for. Everyone gets
0: it and it's not something that's accounted for back to the management they don't have to say i did xyz with my coach it's a private thing correct. with the coach correct
1: totally private yeah. um, broad based it with the simple parameters were chat with your coach about well-being this is the strategy of the organi- of the center so you know it's well-being in the context of the performance you have still got to perform but mm. have a conversation with the coach about well-being mm. Your well-being. Do
0: you have any examples of issues that people addressed or changes that they made as a result of this? Um,
1: it's varied. Some people take a more physical health approach to mm. it, um, and I know this because they came and chatted to me about it just because they, they were thought it was good. Um, other people were trying to manage their own perfectionism or um, or reduce their work. You know, reduce their mental attitude to how much they had to work to fit in mm.
0: to be good enough. So um, that's interesting because that's yeah. about a mind shift.
1: Absolutely, yeah. So people are working on that. Um, ever since I had kids, I don't work. I don't work weekends unless I have to teach on a Saturday, which, which is not you know, maybe two or three times a year, mm. um, or unless I'm travelling, which is quite often, but. But as a general st- stay-at-home work week, I, I don't work weekends. Um, and when I said that to my team members, some of them were deeply shocked um, because they got themselves into habits of working weekends and just, and just working, mm. working, working, yep. working, working, um, which for me personally is not a sustainable practice. Um, uh, Did you
0: influence them in their working practices by sharing that? I think
1: so, yeah, because I think they've come back... One of my staff members has said, oh, they're trying to do that
0: now. Mm.
1: Um, For me, the critical point was having kids. Yeah. Why do I want to be working if I have kids? Why did I have kids if I'm just going to work? And I say that as a person who can afford... I know some people have to work to pay the bills to put food on the table, but academic salaries are not quite that bad. Yeah, yeah. but, uh, yeah, so things, little things like that. Yeah. Um, and, and another example is, like, we have, I don't know how many staff we have here, I think about eight, seven or eight of our team are here, so At they're flowing in to Budapest. this conference. So yeah. this is a, a $45,000 expense to faculty slash centre mm. um, to get everyone here. And then people start doing return on investment calculations. What are you getting out of this and is it really worth it? And I have a, I have a, a middle view on that is, yeah, choose your conferences carefully. They should be in line with what your centre strategy is. But it's also a, oh, there's also a well-being component to it. It's a way of rewarding your staff because um, do work, I know they work hard. My problem with my staff is not do they work hard enough. Is do they work too much? Mm. So yeah. it, it's kind of a, an opportunity for them to have a reasonable nice time um, to keep them sustained. Mm. Um, so I don't I don't just see it mm. in terms of productivity and output. I, I see it in terms of uh, well-being and sustainability of my staff.
0: Yeah.
1: Because um, it's a lovely city. They have a nice time. They mm. get rejuvenated, and, and I know they'll go back and work hard. I already know that. <laughs>
0: and probably the relationship so, aspects that you yeah, talked about absolutely, earlier, absolutely, yeah, and they're here
1: together, and people, all yep. all of that. Yep. So to yep. see yep. it solely yep. in terms of did you go and publish, did you go and present, what mm. are your outputs—that sort of reductionistic managerialism, that sort of, uh, mm. sort of thing—I yeah. think is is overly simplistic yeah. and not not truly understanding how humans operate. <laughs>
0: so, so, in what other ways do you care for their well-being as a director manager? Um so you 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 role model you know you make these sort of decisions around funding that are um, not driven by well being concerns um, I think
1: we have you know like like most organizations, you have your performance reviews or performance and development reviews. Um, I actually you really try to ask people what they're trying to do, like what are you really? Trying to achieve here. What, what? What? are you trying? Where are you trying to go? Three years from now, four, four years from now, or even next six months? What? Why are you doing this? What? What? So having real, authentic, candid conversations about what are you trying to do? Where are you trying to go? Mm. What's in this for you?
0: Because
1: mm. um, people are quite varied. Not everyone is trying to get to full professor. Some people love teaching, and they just want to keep teaching, and they want to do that, and that's their thing. Um, so how do we enable that versus, no, I'm hot to trot, full trajectory, I want to be a full professor, I've got to do my research, I need the big grant. Very different.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: Um, okay. So having those conversations
0: And uh, validating that they're okay, That, they're okay. Yeah, that, yeah. that they and can have isn't... different ways of yeah. expressing their a- academic
1: life. I have kind of a point for that. You know, if we weren't if we want someone, if we want someone to teach and teach a lot, um, then find someone who really loves teaching because they do exist. Um,
0: <laughs> so, yes. yeah.
1: and it's not that the, you know, the big, high research trajectory person hates teaching. It's just that they're probably not going to lay down a course and, and own it for five years and make it their own. Yeah, they'll come in, they'll teach well, um, but they're going to go and do. They're going to go searching for big research grants, mm. um, which is
0: why. So that's about knowing you, knowing the people that you're working knowing, with and managing, knowing them,
1: and even appointing them for that.
0: Mm. Don't mm.
1: don't take a person and then try and. There's a whole lot of organisational problems in the way appointments are made in universities. You know, they 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 are, um, they often appoint for teaching reasons and then try and fit the research agenda in later, or conversely, they Mm. appoint for research reasons and then force them to do all this teaching they never knew was coming. Um, So some serious
0: thinking about the way
1: that's structured.
0: Do you do any profiling of people in terms of their strengths or uh, other other sort of aspects when you're appointing people to help you get Um, that insight?
1: We haven't. Form- it's interesting. We haven't formally done strength-based recruitment mm-hmm. um, in in the formal sense that we would talk about it in positive psychology. But we once in our team we've done strengths assessments and team-based strengths assessments and discussed it.
0: Oh, um, I you. So
1: we do do that.
0: Yeah. yeah. Did um, you? Did you use the which strengths tool? Did you uh, use for that?
1: Originally, we've used both. We've used VIA and mm-hmm. we've used. Um, what now gets called strength profile, no, or and I'll put two.
0: links to those in the yeah. in the bottom. Um, and so everyone did their own profile, and then you came together and discussed it. An indi- or how did that um, play
1: out? No, you get two. You get you get an individual profile, so hmm. people get to look at their own profile, and then you get a team-based profile. So you look at which which ways the team.
0: Is that an automated profile based on the individual profiles, or is it something that's facilitated? Uh, no,
1: it's automated. Um, but because half the team would know what it means, you don't have to do too much facilitation. Um, mm. I it's, it was done on a strategic planning day, mm. so they kind of know what it means. Um, yeah. And so you it, use
0: that then to think about who might play what role within the um, in within f- the centre.
1: Informally, we have we haven't used it too yeah. much. No. Um, this is the kind of thing because there knowledgeable in the area, but they're also academics, yeah. so they don't like to be told what to do, Yes, so it's sort of a mixture.
0: So, because <laughs> you've said before about you know, academics being a little bit different in terms of a workplace, Academics that... love autonomy. Yeah.
1: Um, the best way to manage an academic is get out of their way. Um, if you want to manage a wild beast, give it a large paddock.
0: Um... <laughs> so, that's your job, is...
1: Guide them. Managing but, the large
0: paddock yeah. and letting the academics
1: also, they love autonomy, and um, but they also love a rationale. So self-determination theory, for example, will tell us, um, you know, give people autonomy, but also give them a rationale for what... So autonomy doesn't mean anything goes. Mm. It means, mm. like, for example, we've got we got some big research income targets we've got to hit. Um, that's an external thing. We've got to hit it. yeah It's expected. Um, so it's here's our challenge. We got to hit this. Um, we got to hit this research income target. That's not really that negotiable. We got to get these. We got to get in this zone with this level of staff. This is what's expected. Um, how do we do it? And then let the smart people do mm. it. Um, don't come in and tell them and that they've got to have micromanaged bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them will whinge. They'll say da 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 da. Um, but there's a rationale for why they've got to do it and where, how. They'll usually find a way because mm. um, they're not dumb people.
0: So, this, this points to you as a leader or a director of centre needing very good people skills and being prepared to take the time and having your patience that you talked about you know, earlier on
1: oh, um, yeah. <laughs> to, to actually yeah.
0: sit down and talk and do that explanation. Yeah, you have to So that noise you just heard there was Lindsay's microphone falling down, and both of us were so caught up in the conversation that neither of us noticed it for about five minutes. So in the subsequent five minutes, I've tried to turn up Lindsay's audio as much as possible so you may be able to hear it, and it's worth listening to because he talks about job crafting. But if you don't catch it, don't worry, because I will repeat what he has said word for word at the very end of this podcast, and I'll also put the verbatim text onto the web page.
1: And I've really been pushing the strategy documents so that people can see where they fit
0: in where we're trying to go. Um, And that takes time. It actually takes a lot of time. So I'm, I'm always interested in sort of turning our research back on ourselves you know, in terms of lenses. So if you think about what you would say to workplaces, if you're doing a place, well-being in the workplace consultancy externally, um, and then you turn the lens back to, into our own, into your own center or academia generally, what are the things that we're not doing well or you're not doing well or whatever that we would be telling other people to do? It sounds really trite, but the, the evidence bears it out. Fundamentally,
1: people at work often feel undervalued um, in general or by their immediate boss. Yeah. So simple things about what do you actually value
0: about your staff and have you told them and in what medium have you told them? So that that's probably number one. Yeah. Um, And number two would be the stuff we've been talking about too before about strengths.
1: Have you actually had conversations with staff about their role and the job description and how it can be crafted so they can use their strengths more than they currently are? Yeah. And that might take time as well. It's not because there are organisational constraints that, you know, you've got to deliver this or we've got to get this class taught or we've got to generate this income or we've got to get that contract done and so right this moment we might not be able to get you exactly fully there but at least having a conversation so there's a plan of how it's going to migrate Mm -hmm. there Um, and that those conversations are important Mm -hmm. because again with academics if there's a rationale and there's been a conversation they'll probably accept it for a while Yes. (laughs) if there's good intent yeah yeah Um, so yeah, there's a couple of things there. There's just that, that that
0: that enabling them to feel valued, and then enabling them to use this strengths and, and mold their mold
1: their work, or job crafting work from a strengths.
0: Mm. And so I love that, I love that valuing because that talks about that issue that you mentioned earlier about not getting any local validation oh. and but that we can still do that as managers as with anyone that we work with, whether you're the director of a centre or a project team or even just a colleague. We could do that colleague to colleague, couldn't we? Just yeah. being... I, think so, too.
1: I mean, if you look at the history of universities as well, they've been gendered, so you have rationalist males... Um, that might not have seen the value of some of the stuff I was just talking about. Yeah. And not even might not have seen the value, may not have had the skills of how to do it. Yeah. Um, and I don't mean that in a nasty way, people have different skills. Mm. Um, if, if academic life
0: was originally very cognitive, individual endeavour, you know, you go into your room and you do your work, mm. um, that was old academia for a lot of people. Yes, yeah. yes. So, but this new academia, yeah. looking after people in these ways. Looking after
1: people, many
0: more, yeah. many, many, many more women in the academic workforce. Multicultural, much more externally focused than it used to be. It's yeah. much more community engaged. Um, Recognising that there is the increased stress, despite the job can, satisfaction more and helping. From
1: student, more, more um, so more demands. Students have been enabled to give more feedback, and that they, they do. Do expect a higher level of teaching quality? Mm. Mm. Um, so there's
0: a whole range of things mm. that, have, that are different yeah. than they would have And I love the thing, too, about helping people think about their strengths and job craft. So you still might do the same job. Yeah. but that it's pointing to ways that you can take control you know, um, exhibit some agency make some yeah. choices in how you do that job that might yeah. and, and by
1: job, job crafting you know, don't just mean offloading all your teaching no, have you got a specific
0: example of a job craft?
1: Um, yeah, yeah I mean, there's a few really I mean, in academic life it's obviously there's research and teaching but the the, um, it, it may be changing the type of teaching you're doing at a, at a subject level, but will, or also gradually doing more of you know, more research supervision, a little bit face-to-face teaching, or the particular type of teaching is a work you know workshop style, or lecture style, yeah. Yeah. Um, or it might might be am no, gradually trying to move to more admin and leadership roles. Um, but a way that uses my particular skills or, or strengths.
0: Um... So as you also might have been able to hear, this is where we noticed that the microphone had fallen down and picked it up and put it back in place. Lindsay will continue now talking about different types of job crafting. And just a reminder that if you didn't hear that last five minutes well enough, I'll try and repeat what I could transcribe word for word at the end of this podcast and the text will also be on the webpage for you.
1: And there are different types of job crafting: the actual task you're doing, um, the relationships, so who you're who you're um, who you're interacting with. So there are different forms of what job crafting can look like.
0: And even what you said about one of the people being coached before about changing the way they think about yep. it so, is another sort of yep. version of that, isn't
1: That's it? That's right. So yeah. different different ways. So just enabling people to take charge of of their their work life, their career. Because mm. the academics are sophisticated people. They're not low-skilled labourers. They, they, they think a lot they, um, and they are willing to work hard. Um, so it's about sort of capturing that.
0: Yes. Um, yeah. 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 Great. So just in wrapping up, are there any final thoughts you have about, you know, well-being in our academic workplaces?
1: Oh, absolutely. We, we've, I mean, we're currently trying to champion this idea of positive universities, uh, and people hear the term positive university, they think student wellbeing, mm-hmm. but it's really broader than that. It's more like a positive organisation. So it's student wellbeing, staff wellbeing, and organisational practices which are more in line with positive organisations. So how do we take um, science of wellbeing, positive psychology, positive organisational approaches and apply them to universities mm. um we're not there yet there's a group of universities around the world that are looking at this thinking about it um some people say well, we've been doing that for years but when we unpack it it's actually not not the case um, well, maybe they've
0: been doing little pieces but yeah. not in this more systems led way that you that's were right. talking about at the yeah. very beginning yeah. that systems yeah
1: so that that's kind of a bigger picture way of looking at it and i mm. did Published a paper a while ago called Towards a Positive University. Um, those sorts of ideas are a way of making sense of this, but how to do it at a tangible, tangible mm. level. Yeah. Um, one of the things about wellbeing is people don't—they think wellbeing, they think a you know positive experience or feeling happy, but they yeah. don't take the functioning bit. So wellbeing, from a new demonic perspective, involves positive functioning, good functioning. Um, Can or, you explain
0: that difference?
1: Yeah, so hedonic approach would be I feel good, I'm happy, I feel you know, I have positive emotions, I'm satisfied. Um, an eudaimonic approach is more about growth, functioning, mm. virtue. So well-being includes good functioning, um, which isn't that far from good performance. Mm. So we're not just feeling good; we're actually functioning well and doing well.
0: And the um, research consistently points to that, doesn't yeah, it? If you yeah. take the focus off the performance as the primary thing,
1: that's right. put it on the functioning,
0: uh, the performance necessarily follows, but you've got a yeah. healthier... Um,
1: and that's where the meaning and purpose part really plays a big, yeah. a big, a big role. Um, so all of that kind of fits together. Um, there's big changes in higher education and they're not going to stop um, they're, they're actually going to amplify. Um, there are actually groups of people who are trying to kill universities because academics are expensive and they want to just sell courses online and they want to get rid of the middleman, who the academic is. Um, but my, I'm quite optimistic from a university's perspective that that won't be the case because what we've seen is universities are quite resilient. They adapt. Mm-hmm. They So we've seen it. They've taken on board the technology of... Um, Technology and teaching and MOOCs, so mass online courses, um, universities now offer them. They're not just being offered by competitors. The universities take them in, Um, and it's it's not as simple as a commercial arrangement. Um, People actually understand the importance of an intellectual community, Um, so uh, that that part of it will continue. It, it will change, it will adapt, but I don't think it's about to go extinct. Um, and I don't care, you know, people say, well, universities are not necessarily preparing people for job-ready for corporations, etc. At some level they are, at some level they aren't. If you want a job training course, then the corporation should pay for the job training course. Um, there's still those fundamental ideas about social role of a university, um as an intellectual community, which isn't solely reducing it to job training. Job training is very important, but it's only a part of a role of a university as a social institution. Mm -hmm. Um, That's getting a bit beyond wellbeing, but maybe it's not because wellbeing is about purpose and meaning and contribution. Um, And a lot of academics would believe in what I just said, um, and that's part of the purpose and meaning that sustains the, mm. their well-being. Yeah. If they were going to go to a job training course, they'd go to a job training course. Um, mm. I think they think about the university as a social institution, as something bigger than mm. only that.
0: And taking this bigger systems, even you talked about this initiative, this Positive Universities, at a top level, so there's what you can do as the director of your centre, what would be... A, a a key thing or a starting point that the, the university leadership could do to start to move towards a positive university?
1: Um, that's a very good question, and that's something we're wrestling with right now. Um, student wellbeing, at the moment, a lot of student wellbeing programs are still deficit-focused. So they'll, yes. they'll say we've got a counselling unit and we're dealing with exam stress, etc. Um, <clears throat> which is a good thing. Uh, I see
0: that... In many countries, yes, that, that um, trend.
1: And okay. this is one of the reasons I've been attracted to, to and work on the area of well-being literacy. Um, I fundamentally don't believe that a lot of people still have the language and ways to communicate well-being in the way we mean well-being in a contemporary sense. So, well-being is involving positive attributes, not just the absence of mm. negative attributes. So, well-being is more than the absence of anxiety and depression, um, or the absence of bullying. Um, well-being in this broader sense where students can communicate about it, what is it, what is self-regulation, what is using strengths, what is well-being, what is personal meaning, what is purpose. Mm. This sort of language um, can communicate with each other across contexts in ways which are meaningful to them
0: Mm.
1: as young men, young women from China, from Australia, from wherever. so that that's part of it. Yeah. So actually having a literacy about this idea, um, having senior people that understand the relationship between well-being and performance, um, and then being willing to communicate this to staff and students explicitly and implicitly. Um, there's, there's quite a bit to it. There's, mm, it's, it's, it's a whole con- organisational con- yeah, change yeah. phenomenon.
0: I can see it connecting to what you talked before about your promotion package and what you have to yes. account to. It, it would impact down at all correct. those sorts of levels in yep. multiple yep. ways. Yep. That sounds brilliant. I will put a link to that Positive University paper yep. on, the, on the webpage as well. Great. So... Thank you so much. I think that's um, lots of really interesting food for thought. And even just in this conversation, you've you've actually started to, I think, promote the literacy of well-being in the way oh, that no, you've talked to go about run, it. I know, I
1: have to go run a workshop on it right now. Oh, good.
0: So <laughs> I, I will let you go and do that. No, Thank sorry.
1: you for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you.
0: Thank you. you can find the summary notes and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and now also on Stitcher. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues so that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently. As promised, I'm going to read out the word for word, what I could transcribe from what Lindsay said when we had that microphone drop earlier. So you may remember that he'd been talking about just letting smart people get on and do it and you don't have to tell them they have to have micromanaged parts they will usually find a way. So he continues saying, you have to do this both individually and as a group. And I've been trying to push this strategy document so people can see where they fit into it and where we want to go. And that takes time. I raised some question then about turning the lens back onto academia. And he says, it sounds really trite, but the evidence bears it out. Fundamentally, people at work often feel undervalued in general or by their immediate boss. So simple things about what do you actually value about your staff and have you told them? And in what medium have you told them? So that's number one. And number two would be the stuff we talked about before about strengths. Have you actually had conversations with staff about their role and the job description and how it can be crafted so that they can use their strengths more than they currently are? And that might take time as well because there are organizational constraints that you have to deliver this or get this class taught or we've got to generate that income or we've got to get that contract done. So while at this moment, we can't get you exactly fully there, at least we have that conversation. So there's a plan of how it's going to migrate there. And those conversations are really important because again, with academics, if there is a rationale and there has been a conversation, they'll probably accept it for a while if there's good intent. So there's a couple of things there, enabling them to feel valued and enabling them to use their strengths and mold their work, job craft their work from a strength space. And I commented then about, you know, that's something that we could do for each other too. And he said, I think too, if you look at the history of the universities as well, they've been gendered. So you have rationalist males that might not see the value of some of the stuff I was just talking about. And they might not have had the skills for how to do it. And I don't mean that in a nasty way. People have different skills. If academic life was originally a very cognitive individual endeavor, you go into your room and you do your work. That was old academia for a lot of people. This new academia, looking after people, many, many more women in the academic workforce, also culturally much more externally focused than it used to be and much more community engaged, more demands from students. I wouldn't say more demands. Students have been able to have been enabled to give more feedback and they do expect a higher level of teaching quality. So a whole range of things that are different to how they have been. Uh, I made by some comment then about loving the job crafting. You can do the same job, but exploring where you can take control and what choices you can make. And, uh, Lindsay comes back and says, and by job crafting, I don't just mean offloading all your teaching. So I then asked him if he had a specific example of job crafting, and he responded saying, yeah, there are a few. In academic life, there is obviously research and teaching, but the it may be changing the type of teaching you're doing at a subject level, or also gradually doing more research-led teaching or face-to-face teaching, or a particular type of teaching like workshop style or lecture style, or gradually trying to move to more admin and leadership roles, but doing it in a way that uses my particular skills or strengths. And that's when we pick up the mic again and you should be able to hear.